Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. For a country slightly larger than the U.S. state of Connecticut, the country of Lebanon has attracted more attention than many other states in the Middle East and North Africa. Ostensibly a secular republic, the Lebanese constitution contains many confessional provisions for different groups and sects, Muslim and Christian, among its very varied population. And as a result, Lebanon has experienced almost a century of conflict since it was first established under a French mandate in the 1920s. But is secularism really to blame for Lebanon's woes? Is sectarianism really to blame for Lebanon's woes? And are these two ideas completely incompatible with one another? These are the questions explored by Mark Farha in his book, Lebanon, the Rise and Fall of a Secular State Under Siege, out in 2019 from Cambridge University Press. Mark Farha is teaching at the University of Zurich in the Sociology Department. He's also giving a masterclass for Macat.com. I interviewed him about his book and about this fascinating examination, not only of Lebanon's history, but about the way people choose to tell it. Here's our interview. Mark Farha, welcome to the New Books Network. Our traditional first question is always to ask our guests about themselves. So, uh, Tell us uh, a little more about yourself and your educational background, and uh, what led you to become interested uh, in in this topic? Well, I was born and raised in Switzerland to a parents, uh, father being my father being of Lebanese descent, American, and my mom being of German descent, as a Swiss, basically in Switzerland. And uh, I went on to study at Georgetown where I first became, upon finishing the Swiss school system, where I became interested at Georgetown in you know, political affairs, international relations, and all that. I got a little bit dismayed with what I saw was the corruption of politics 
and then ventured into study of religion at Harvard, comparative religion. And at this time at Harvard, I really benefited, and also Georgetown, of course, I benefited a lot from the free forum of thought that I had there. I could dabble in all kinds of topics and uh, countries. I studied uh, China. I studied uh, Middle East as well, of course. Uh, and But it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion, even though it was partly of Lebanese descent, that I would study the Middle East. And in fact, I only started uh, learning Arabic in graduate school to Egypt for a year, Casa, and improved my Arabic, uh, and then sort of got into that. And then when I started apply, applied or got into the PhD program at Harvard, um, the original topic was one I was thinking about looking at uh, comparing the thought of intellectuals in Egypt and Lebanon, secular intellectuals. But then I was kind of, uh, you know, encouraged to focus on one country, and so it was Lebanon, which I thought was an interesting uh, you know, case, because Egypt had been studied a lot. And um, so I went into that. So, you know, I had a lot of different mentors across my life uh, from different fields, from different disciplines, from theology, from literature, uh, to history, and sociology. And then, you know, I thought that this case of Lebanon would be a very good uh, you know, example for a lot of these uh, theories and contested theories, etc. So it was kind of a, not a foregone conclusion, but a, sort of a natural evolution that I ended up in, in, in this topic. So the book is called uh, Lebanon, the Rise and Fall of a Secular State Under Siege. And this 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 concept of the secular and secularism um itself really plays a very important role in in your analysis and you you devote a, a chapter to actually defining what you mean by it um which uh, is is actually very interesting because um as you point out a lot of people make assumptions about what secularism is and what it means so uh can we start off uh, by having you uh, tell us a little more about how you understand secularism and why this concept is so differently understood by by various uh, politicians, political scientists, historians, and, and the like? Yeah, it's a contested history, not just in the Middle East, but also in the, in the European context. And of course, a lot of it has to do with history, the history of the state, etc., in my book, I take a very threadbare minimalistic definition and use try to apply that, uh, which is one of non-discrimination, non-discrimination of the state neutrality, if you want, towards a plurality of ethnic or religious identities. And um, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a tinge of atheism uh, or the, the accusation, the ready accusation that secularists are atheists, the equation of the two. And that, of course, is very prominent also in the Middle East and the Arab world, amongst Muslims and Christians, I should say, not just amongst uh, Muslims, as some would think. Um, and, uh, I mean, of course, yeah, in Islamic uh, history, there's a history to this as well. There were people who were called uh, secularists avant la lettre, l'Ahraniya in early Islam, people that kind of worshipped time, so to speak, or the temporal world, and you have the same in the West with Aurorianism, Ibn Rushd's followers in the West. 
uh, philosophers, etc. So th- there's a history to it in both contexts, and it always hinges on this kind of question. Do you equate secularism with atheism? Need it be oppressive, or can there be a liberal conception of secularism, the civil state? And of course, I uh, always espouse this kind of liberal vision. Um, And I think it's, you know, I have another article where I talk about the gradations of secularism. You have the Chinese model of the Cultural Revolution or the French Revolution, which is very oppressive. And you have other models, the American model, for instance, which is more freedom of religion than a freedom from religion traditionally. So, you know, these are all the different models. And Lebanon is a distinct case in that it combines all these problematics in a way. Um, there is an element of the Ottoman legacy of the Millet system. There is an element of the French legacy of laicism. There is an element of, if you want, American, if you want to call it that, capitalism in the 20th century and the kind of liberalism that that is thought to bring. And it's another question, you know, which I try to raise in the book is whether capitalist development would lead to secularism or not. This is an old notion. Voltaire used to speak about it when he said, look at the, you know, the stock market where the Jew, the Christian, the Muslim get along. That's a secular kind of society. So the idea that, you know, capitalism and trade would overcome these primordial identities is is very uh, prominent, but is also liable to be questioned, you know, or, you know, are these identities ingrained? And then what is the role of the state to mediate these identities? And Lebanon is really a case study, a very good case study to, to raise these questions, to shed light on these questions. And I was always very... Uh, disappointed with purely intellectual histories of secularism. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that see secularism or the absence thereof or sectarianism as purely a function of ideas. Um, that does not mean, however, on the other hand, that I think that ideas or religious texts can be discarded. They do have an impact on contemporary thought as well. So I'm somewhere in the middle there. You know, that those that say uh, pure materialists and say it's all about, you know, structural issues and and society and that, and others that are primordialists that say it's all about these inherited identities. And I'm in the middle. I, I try to take account of both. I don't try to deny one or the other. And thus, with the, this kind of, I hope, balanced and holistic approach, which fuses, and it's ambitious, fuses uh, a sociological, uh, political science, uh, you know, uh, analyses, and historical analysis, straightforward ones, all together um, to arrive at kind of a better understanding of why secularism or the idea of a secular state gained more traction or why it receded and was fought or uh, became came under siege, as, I, as the title of this book indicates. Mm-hmm. And yeah, speaking personally, as somebody who has always had issues wrapping my head around intangible concepts, uh, I, I do appreciate the fact that your analysis is rooted in, you know, the historical examples instead of uh, um, intellectual history has, for its own sake has always stymied me a little bit with apologies to any listeners who happen to be uh, intellectual historians, my own advisor uh, being one of those. But uh, you you take the approach that that we can't really understand the idea of secularism in 20th century Lebanon by looking solely at the modern context. Um, and in fact, 
you go back to the beginning of the 16th century in, in, in chapter two, uh, looking at, at the Druze prince Fakhardin II uh, and some of his transsectarian policies as antecedents. So uh, t- tell us more about this, this historical approach um, and what it, it what we can learn about proto-secularism and what we can get out of this long durée um, analysis. Well, you know, it's not necessarily my brilliant uh, discovery that, uh, and many other historians and intellectual historians to have pointed out in Europe at least, and I think this applies globally, that the pre-modern phase was a precursor to, you know, what we had later, that the Reformation was a precursor to the French Revolution um, and uh, later developments in that, uh, in that sense, uh, the, you know, people speak about Machiavelli, for instance, in political science, uh, for the first time, kind of uh, creating a division between uh, theology and political science. And, uh, you have Calvin, who was, you know, the first fellow to legitimize interest taking, for instance, in Christianity, uh, at the same time that Ebu Sud al-Fendi in the Ottoman Empire, the Sheikh al-Islam, was doing the same. And so I like to look at history globally, universally, and with an eye to the synchronicity across uh, different contexts, which is these, these common patterns that sometimes emerge uh, across space and time. And, and, you know, that intrigues me and has intrigued others, of course. And so Fakhreddin is one example. Um, you have Emperor Akbar in the Mughal Empire, who has similar uh, reforms. Of, and amongst these reforms were to rule integrating and giving sort of equal rights, basically, almost, to all the uh, religious communities in one's empire. And uh, that was that was unusual. And in Lebanese historiography, of course, he's a very contested figure to this day. Mm-hmm. I think unnecessarily so. And I, you know, these polemics, I could go, I, there are a lot of polemics in Lebanese history. And I try best I can to, uh, you know, be objective. And I have no agenda. I have no narrative, quote unquote. I don't like that term necessarily that I want to push. I have no spin in political science I want to advance. I really just tried to look at the facts and, and the, and the, the, you know, the accounts as objectively as possible, maybe more as a Swiss than as a, as a Lebanese participant or whatever. And, um, and I found that Fakhreddin, yes, indeed. I mean, whether or not, you know, there's a different debate when you want to say he is the pater uh, patria, the, the founder of the nation and in the modern sense, that's a different but you can say, I think, objectively, that he did, in fact, for the first time, you know, allow Shia to serve in the army, for instance, and to, uh, you know, give all, all the communities basically equal rights, so to speak. And even his own identity was up in dispute, but he, was, he presented himself as a Muslim, but he had wives from different faiths and he built churches. And, you know, he was a very cosmopolitan figure. And he did unify a territory which was uh, almost equivalent to today's borders. Now, this is, again, very contested. A lot of people say he was still uh, reporting to the Ottomans, and that is true, but it's also true that the Ottomans severed his head in 1635 and <laughs> sent an army of 40,000 to, you know, uh, cut him to size because he was, you know, establishing the semi-autonomy autonomy 
in this territory, which was beyond just the traditional Mount Lebanon, but encompassed a huge territory that almost overlaps with that of today. So, you know, was were these the basic predicament is such that you have a diverse society to make it very simple, of composed of different uh, communal uh, groups and also social groups. It's a feudal society at that point. How do you integrate? How do you rule over that? Do you adopt uh, you know a position? He was Druze technically. I mean, did mm-hmm. he want to have a Druze emirate? Or did he want to have an emirate which integrates all these groups together? And it was practic. I mean, he was a pra- pra- pragmatic fellow. He was a, above all maybe a merchant prince, as they say, a trader. And and he, you know, probably for you know pragmatic reasons, you can argue, besides ethical reasons, he thought that it was opportune to uh, integrate all these groups in together. Rather, and he also, of course, you know, fought those that were resisting him, but especially feudal lords. But in general, that was the idea. And that is still contested to this day. So, you know, each group, each political faction in Lebanon will look at him differently. And a lot of people will dismiss Fakhreddin as being, you know, that, that it's being, it's a historical, myth, part of historical mythology, uh, sort of like Wilhelm Tell is in Switzerland. And I think in that case, I think uh, there's some truth to the myth and also in Fakhreddin's case. So that's what I tried to outline. But it's again, it's not it's not my uh, original invention. It's following the footsteps of a lot of historians also of Europe and other uh, contexts who who point out that the pre-modern pressures of trade, of uh, etc., made it imperative that this kind of ruler emerged. And I don't think it's coincidental coincidental that you do have similar reforms, patterns of rule in across contexts universally in this 16th century. In terms of, of the way that this has been described, you, you discuss in the book um, a couple of times that, as you said, the, these histories are contested, um, which also is not uncommon, um, especially among um, countries in the Middle East, as well as, as throughout um, the, the formerly colonized world where we're nationalist historiographical ideas have, have arisen. You describe that there is there's a school of thought that, that says that uh, sectarianism didn't exist in Lebanon until the 19th century. And there's another school of thought that argues that secularism is a wholly foreign idea that was introduced uh, to Lebanon uh, during the 19th century, which itself was a very turbulent time. As you you just mentioned, Lebanon was not yet an independent polity, but for the, for the region, it was extremely turbulent. You have the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt, then, they, then Syria, then the Egyptians invaded um, and were pushed out by the, the Ottomans and, and their allies. Um, and on top of this, the Tanzimat reforms of the Ottoman Empire and the uh, encroachment of European powers, all of which have a huge uh, impact on the community of Mount Lebanon. and. And this is a key period in the way that people come to think about the area and what its political future should be. So there's an awful lot to unpack here. <laughs> um, but uh, can you walk us through some of the major changes that were taking place and how uh, the intelligentsia and the political leadership sought to respond uh, to them? Yeah, it is a huge question. And, and uh, I will just maybe try to shed light on some of the maybe new approaches I tried to take. 
the well, first of all, the notion that secularism is a 19th century invention is not altogether wrong. If it depends again how you define it. Now, as I said before, if you define it as mere non-discrimination by the central uh, ruler or government, then someone like Fahadin would qualify, I think, as a proto-secularist to a degree. But if you define it as in the modern form with the whole state administration and standardization of law and all that comes with that, then it's true that the 19th century, of course, is pivotal. But then also, and this is what I try to show in the book here, again, by widening the lens, by not just focusing on the Lebanese case and getting tangled in all those debates, which I do as well, but by expanding the lens and casting an eye, for instance, to Europe, because the same Napoleon Bonaparte who crossed the Alps 1797 and, uh, you know, unified the quarreling Swiss cantons the first time in a kind of central state, in a brutal way too, one should say, even though he was formerly Catholic, he raped and pillaged some of the Catholic, his troops did, some of the Catholic uh, regions and the Catholic you know, feudal families were less inclined to, um, or aristocratic families were less inclined to support Napoleon than some of the Protestants were. So it was, in the terms of the sectarian output, it was it was strange, his, his legacy. But he unified Switzerland, so to speak, from 1798 to 1803, and then the Act of Mediation as well established the foundation for the modern Swiss Republic, Confederation. Um, he then, as we all know, went to Egypt, right? And there, his program of reform, Napoleonic reform, was also partly instituted for opportunistic reasons, of course. He poses Muslim and all that. But in fact, the you know the Christians at that point were welcoming him, according to Jabati, and his followers, uh, his as I call acolytes, or, um, avatars came to Lebanon, like Ibrahim Pasha, for instance, mm-hmm. and um, later tried to institute similar reforms. And it's Ibrahim Pasha, for instance, who sets up the first Diwan in Beirut in 1831, where you have the 50-50 Muslim-Christian division, and he even had as the head of the Diwan, of the Diwan an Armenian, uh, which was Christian, which was a, a novel idea then, and very controversial, of course. So that shook up, you know, the, the whole... Uh, balance there in the Middle East as well. And again, Ibrahim Pasha, not to lionize these guys too much, uh, was very brutal too in, in, in uh, clamping down on other feudal uh, lords and areas. But the idea was, this was a time where the incipient kind of centralization, we know of Muhammad Ali in Egypt, etc., it's been written about a lot, uh, of the state took place. And uh, this, again, happened again, to go back to that theme, in parallel almost, almost at the same time as it did in Europe. And the notion of secularism was also really, you know, started to be debated almost at the same time in the elite circles, in the liberal elite circles in, say, in Switzerland, uh, were largely Protestant at that time, and in the uh, Beirut and uh, Alexandria and other uh, Middle Eastern cities then as well. So, this is uh, the ferment out of which emerges the idea of uh, the idea of secularism on an intellectual level, which follows to a degree the political developments. And there you have different debates going on, different grades of secularism, atheism, even uh, you know, all kinds of shades of it. 
someone like, I think I go into it, Farah Antun, originally mm-hmm. from Trablus, and Rashid Rida was also from Trablus. They have, you know, they're kind of the, if you want, the precursors of what we have today of the uh, bona fide secularists, who are not that many from between, but there are a few, and the Islamists, if you want, the Salafists. So that debate was already prefigured there in, in this period. So it's a formative period, a constitutive period, which has been, you know, written, a lot of ink has been spilled in this period, and a lot of debates still rage about the uh, idea. But just to go back to your initial question, whether it's a foreign implant or not, and this is, of course, still the debate, well, I mean, the, I, you know, I, as I said before, I think structurally the idea was there already before, <laughs> But uh, in this, you know, modern sense, yes, of course, a lot of these uh, intellectuals were influenced by European intellectuals. And we know that in the Turkish case as well. They were reading uh, Rousseau and then later uh, Comte and others. And they also suffered sometimes, I would say, from the same deficiencies as their European counterparts did. The highbrow intellectual secularists in some salon. You think of Georges Sedan or others who really had depict, had a real uh, revulsion almost for the common people. And this is an Achilles heel of secularists in the Middle East and in the West too sometimes, who, which still I think is observable today. I think this elitism, that's the Achilles heel of secularism, that it was, you know, often confined to these elites who were well-off, who were could afford these educations, etc., and who were speaking in a condescending way of their compatriots who were still mired in the, you know, uh, uh, religious uh, myths, if you want. And um, I think that that was a problem, which also appears at the same time. But, you know, again, to, um, to say that uh, sectarianism is a child of the 19th century that I think is 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 uh, is, is you know I I, I don't uh, find much uh, currency in that argument because uh, the sectarian conflict uh, was afoot you know in the region from time immemorial both interreligious and intra-religious you know you have the Sunni Shia debate with fitna in the beginning you have in Christianity many many schisms as we know historians and orthodox and catholics and what have you and to this day still those schisms some of them prevail so i think there we're not doing ourselves as historians a service and i say this in the book at several junctures if we try to sugarcoat the past or if we try to simplistically you know lay all the blame for sectarian strife in the 19th century etc at the doorsteps of europe uh, and that's to the present day. And, and I'm the last person to ignore <laughs> the role of European powers and to the present day and uh, Western powers in, in stoking or exploiting sometimes these sectarian differences. But to say that they're purely a brainchild of the latter, I think, is a, is a gross simplification and does not do a service to the many indigenous uh, voices who valiantly fought and sought to overcome the sectarian blight they had. And this was, of course, the main motivation for secularism. For someone like Buddha Subustani, for instance, who is Nafir Surya, many times makes this argument. He has that precise, if you look at that text, precise ambiguity. It says, on the one hand, 
yes, the Europeans uh, exploited it and, you know, we're horrible in a way, but on the other hand, it's our fault. <laughs> and uh, it's really, mm -hmm. we have to really look into our own uh, problems. And on the contrary, he even says it's, it's a, you know, regrettably that only after 1860, due to the European intervention, was this solved, this problem. And this is a problem that comes up again and again in Lebanese history. You know, the Harub al-Akharin al-Ardna, as Hassan Twain used to say. But also, unfortunately, the, uh, the mediations of these conflicts were often, almost always done also with external mediation, with external influence. And Buddhist Bustani alludes to that in 1860 in a wistful tone, but uh, that's what he says. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you mentioned the, this tension between this, the, the quote-unquote of the intelligentsia um, and others. Can, can you talk a little bit more about these sorts of uh, social, different, uh, social classes and, and the way that they are differentiated? Because you, 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 you do at, at various points in the book uh, describe how you have this sort of uh, intellectual set uh, on the coast, and particularly in Beirut, and then you have, um, you know, the the, the landholders and 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 others uh, in the mountains, and that there's there's a bit of a, a tension between them. Yeah, I mean, I mean th that is a tension in the mountain and the sea, uh, and 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 also in Switzerland you have that. Of course, in other countries, you have this uh, the urban. It should be more the the urban. Right, centers uh, at versus the the countryside, and um, yes, I mean, and then that that has you know the because of the the trade networks, etc. The cities were the hub for merchants and for profiteers, and again, that's something you know, just not to stay mired in history uh, that extends to the present day to a degree. I mean, that's in today it's a different form, maybe, but. You have today in Lebanon, part of the crisis is that the society was so bifurcated between, you know, a financial capitalism, very profitable for, for, for banks and people who are speculating with money and, and, and that, and, and the gross majority of the population that was left out of that or is suffering from that, in fact, and paying for, for that. And, and uh, you know, it's also Marxist view of history, but... Um, that certainly also obtained in the 19th century and then came to the fore extremely in a very vicious way in the First World War when you had uh, food shortages and people were mm. speculating with grain on the one hand and hoarding grain and getting rich off of that 
and uh, others were one third of the population, population was starving to death. Um, so yeah, and, and it's intellectually, I see, you know, obviously, you know, and I guess I'm guilty of this too, having gone through this kind of education. I was very, very privileged to go through. Uh, and it's, you know, it's unusual to be able to devote your life so long to reading and to research, and mm-hmm. and and you know, most people can't can't don't have the time and luxury to do that. And you know, sometimes I don't know if it's a luxury or a blessing or a bane, but <laughs> but so but that's the you know that's that was the situation in extreme sense in the 19th century, and um, it, it was always difficult to fin- find a lingua franca between. What in German they call Bildungsbürgertum, the you know educated uh, elite, if you want, and Werun, I call them, I think, enlightened ones, so to speak, and mm. the, the population. How do you make these ideas stick to population at large? And it's still uh, we can get into that later when we look at the Constitution, maybe, but it's still the eternal debate of Lebanon. You know, the societal. Uh, framework, the social profile of the country versus the legalistic text, the, what they call nufus, that is the souls of the people, and the uh, uh, nusus, the texts. And how do you, you know, a constitution in a sense, as uh, has been said, is kind of a reflection of the spirit of a people. So if the, the, the society as itself say is a sectarian society uh, or confessional one or a feudal one or what have you, um, then how can you, you know, paste onto that this kind of constitution? And if even if you introduce a constitution that is quote-unquote enlightened uh, or secular, if you want, and I use those terms uh, with difficulty, then how does it, you know, stick, so to speak? And, and this has been part of the problem of the Lebanese constitution, which we can get into later, and in that it's a hybrid constitution which fuses elements, different elements, some of them drawn from the French constitution, some of them drawn from the Ottoman Millet system, etc. So it's, um, you know, it's not been resolved, and I don't think many intellectuals, maybe poets have been better at that sometimes, um, but it's difficult to resolve this this kind of chasm between uh, elite and society, especially uh, in Lebanon. Uh, yes, and I, I did notice the uh, liberal application of uh, verses by Adonis uh, in the book. So, uh, well, let's turn to the Constitution then, because uh, uh, this this makes up quite a bit of the third chapter. Uh, the Constitution uh, promulgated in 1926 um while uh Lebanon which is finally now uh, uh an independent entity under the French mandate separate from the rest of Syria um not unanimously uh agreed upon i, I should point out uh because there was a uh, it seems to have been a significant part of the 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 population that that preferred unity with Syria. And uh, there are provisions for confessional identities um, written into the constitution, uh, quotas, certain offices assigned to certain communities. Um, and you describe the, that this once again has often been attributed to the French, um, but also that uh, you demonstrate that 
this was a necessary compromise, and I'll quote here, between the secular Republican ideal most espoused emotively and the disheartening communal reality that was confronted on the ground. So, uh, and as you mentioned, there's continuing tension over the way that confessionalism has been uh, not only incorporated into politics, but actually proscribed legally um, and whether this needs to be reformed. So can we, can we talk more about this uh, since we've been leading up to this discussion of the Constitution um, and how this tension has played out and why finding this balance has been so hard? Yes. Um, you know, again, I guess I engaged in a bit of revisionism here, but um, again, only upon reading the minutes of, of the discussions of the Lebanese constitution, which was, yes, under French supervision, but there was a committee of Lebanese um, who really uh, came up with the draft under the, you know, influence of Michel Shiha and others. And in that discussion, I think I cite the situation where they, I mean, they mix and meld, you know, arguments. Mm -hmm. and they, they want some, uh, bring up Switzerland and Belgium as their ideals. And then others retort and say, well, we're not Switzerland or Belgium, you know. Right. And maybe you know, how much they knew the history of Switzerland, which was also quite contentious, of course. But in the end, as only one really uh, member of this committee, Subhai Haidar, a Shia actually, who stands up in, in opposition, all others vote in favor of the confessional safeguards that are introduced in the Constitution. So it's not, and it wasn't, uh, that wasn't necessarily a French idea. That was a Lebanese <laughs> uh, idea and uh, homegrown because the French were, you know, were divided. Some of them wanted, yes, the United States, but others were uh, squarely uh, secularist or laicist. And, um, and the, the Constitution itself, as I said before, you know, in the first eight kind of articles or so, has many provisions which, you know, are reminiscent of a lot of our uh, Western constitutions about, uh, for instance, freedom of faith is absolute, uh, etc. And so that's all there. But um, the, uh, you know, again, the, the idea was for these groups, I mean, th this was the reality on the ground. That's what I'm saying, that you mm -hmm. have these confessional identities. And it's still the problem today. I mean, a lot of people are saying, and you know why? Why don't doesn't Lebanon abolish the confessional nature of its uh, aspects of its constitution? And I should say there are a few articles about that. There, there's one about the division of the parliament having to be equally divided between Muslims and Christians. So that's there. And there's talk of the fair apportionment of positions according to confessional. Uh, representation, but uh, for instance, the fact that the Lebanese president should be Maronite, etc., and the Prime Minister Sunni is not in the Constitution. Just for clarification, there. So some of these things, and there, indeed, there were Muslim candidates for president, and you know, could still be theoretically today. But the idea that you could overnight impose, and some French actually want to do that, a pure French or laicism, uh, and superimpose that on Lebanon. You know, would that solve all the issues? Um, there's a lot of aspects of that. One of them is, you know, who would people vote for if the society is based, if people by and large marry members from the other sex, go to schools mainly as another state, but from people of the same sex, have this mentality of sectarianism and 
you know, thus, for instance, if you have a Shia Hezbollah member or a fan, he would probably continue to vote for Hezbollah. And the Sunni would continue to vote for Mustafa and the Christian would continue to vote for, you know, Tayyar or Marada or Falange, the Kataib. So it's it's really uh, a matter there of uh, real realism of sorts, and also I think I mean the other pa- aspect of that, which we'll get into later, is that I don't think I don't I hope this book does that. Want to reduce all the issues and all the woes of Lebanon to sectarianism or present secularism as a panacea? Pretty simple. I mean, even if all Lebanese were of the same faith, you know. That I keep saying, and you know, uh, you'd still have. Would you have any? You probably have ninety-nine percent of the current problems as well. So right. So I don't think, um, or maybe seventy percent, whatever. But you'd still have corruption. Still have all these other issues, economic uh, doldrums, etc. So I think there's a reductionism there to reduce it all to this. And I think also there's a, a kind of a, maybe a wishful thinking to say that oh, um, if the constitution could only be uh, rid of these articles uh, that are, have a confessional aspect to them, then all will be fine and dandy. I think that is also a gross simplification. That having been said, of course, in the especially after the Taf Accord, there are provisions to reform and to um, establish, you know, a secularization of the system uh, or deconfessionalization is 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 the word. And um, that has not been done. So there, there have been aspects to it. And it's also true that the current system um, might exacerbate problems. I mean, that's debatable. I don't think it's the cause of all the trouble. And I'm not sure that its abolishment overnight would, would solve the problem of confessionalism because if people, as I said before, still vote in confessional blocks, then you still might have the same problems crop up. Whereas the current situation with electoral laws, etc., forces people, for instance, to vote for members of the other sect to enter coalitions and to 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 do to you know preserve kind of representation. But I mean, the other problem is, of course, you know, is the representative say Nabi Peri of the Shia? Does he represent the Shia interests, or does he represent his own pocket of his, of his group? Same with the Christian president, same with the Sunni premier, etc. I mean, should the confessional identity be, you know, determinative of your uh, political representation? So the problem is there, but I, I, I hasten to simplify it and reduce it to, to it. You, you actually make a point of, of not getting into the civil war, so I won't go there. But obviously, that was um, a, a major uh, crisis uh, in in late 20th century Lebanese history, uh, which came to an end with the Ta'if Accords uh, in, 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 in 1990, after which there, you, you describe this push for, again, deconfessionalization uh, in the political sphere, but also accompanied by moves toward privatization and integration of Lebanon into into the global economy. But despite this, um, despite all of the sort of optimism that came in the 90s with the end of the civil war and and the sort of revitalization of of Beirut um, and and the reopening of the country, you describe Lebanon as an incomplete country. And um, 
you know, we're recording now in summer 2021. Um, the last year has been fairly disastrous for, for Lebanon um, for, on a number of fronts, uh, economic, politically, socially. So why, why have all these efforts been for naught? What, what, why is Lebanon still, in your words, incomplete? Well, you know, there's enough blame to go around and there's a lot of aspects to this. Uh, and uh, it's, it's both internal and external. So internally, let's start there. Uh, I don't go into this in this book, into the reform efforts, for instance, in education, the attempt to secularization of that. I have a separate article on that. Um, but uh, there was that as well. And that effort to unify, you know, the sectarian school curricula and history curricula in particular failed uh, on account of, you know, uh, actually it was in the end of the Fatah al-Islami, the Islamic conquest, that, that word <laughs> created a lot of uh, division and so, and uh, polemics and so, so that, I mean, there was other reasons too, but that was part of the problem. But uh, there is that, there's the failed uh, civil marriage uh, bill, 1997 under President Harawi, which has made some strides since then, actually. But at that point, too, there was a kind of, even though there was support, actually, uh, for political reasons and sectarian reasons, again, that was brought to fail. Then what you're talking about after 1990, well, there was a state-building effort, right? And uh, in came Rafiq al-Hariri in in 93, and who was a Saudi... Lebanese billionaire who tried to, and again, going back to the notion of capitalism through capitalism, through development, through uh, tourism, trade, tried to bring Lebanon up from the ashes. And um, these efforts, you know, were encountered maybe two main, three more difficulties. One is maybe the nature of finance capitalism as a whole, that you create more and more debt and it was a difficult situation, right? So they had to borrow money on the global markets for and and sell Lebanese bonds first for 40, 30%, whatever interest. And uh, that was, created a huge indebt- debt bubble, which increased to the present day uh, astronomically. And now it came, now it was burst. It's a, it's a strange uh, wonder, actually, that it didn't burst earlier. People were saying for decades that this should have, uh, was not sustainable. And it was not sustainable for, I mean, there's many reasons, compounding factors that came to it. You have the Syrian influence. The Syrian hegemony over Lebanon. There was a lot of mm-hmm. money and corruption extracted during that period until 2005, until, you know, how do you, the Syrian troops left after Hariri's assassination. So uh, that was there. But then you have the Israeli uh, impact as well, which can't be forgotten. You have, you know, the Grapes of Wrath in 96. Mm-hmm. You have... Uh, when I first went to Lebanon, I remember the power point, uh, plant was being bombed by the Israelis. It was later rebuilt with Saudi uh, uh, aid. But, uh, you know, continues 2006, more recent uh, incident when Israelis responded uh, to the Hezbollah kidnapping uh, or um, uh, issues there. Uh, and so it was, you know, that aspect too. Uh, can't be ignored, uh, and there was a lot of destruction and a lot of damage done and a lot of costs incurred. Uh, it's it's uh, and and you add to that all what we're talking about, either the identity aspect, 
which again was compounded by you know the regional context. The war in Iraq created a refugee wave, as we know, into Syria. That destabilized the situation there a bit, and then later the war in Syria created a huge refugee wave into Lebanon. And today, I mean, I don't have to tell listeners, you know, two million or so uh, refugees of Syrian uh, descent. In addition, and Iraqi as well, in addition to the Palestinian refugees camps, which already were there, uh, you know, this all together is such a strain on any state, let alone the state of the confined size of Lebanon, that it's it's a wonder that the state survived as long as it did. And again, irrespective, I mean, of any identity issues, I mean, again, those compounded it because refugees often, in this case, the Palestinians in the beginning and the Syrians now too were often of Sunni uh, uh, heritage. And that therefore creates these uh, polemics in Lebanese society about, uh, you know, the sectarian balance as well. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a tough uh, answer. Why were all these efforts for not? I mean, how could it have been avoided? Uh, what would have been the better way to get it? There's a lot of blame game here. There's a, uh, and it's, it's not easy to see how a country that was completely destroyed in 1990 could have risen from the ashes given its locale there, you know, sandwiched into uh, between Syria and Israel and with all the heritage of issues uh, which, which, which come with that conflict. And then you have the, you know, the Iraq war, which again inflames the region and uh, even more. And, uh, you know, uh, people forget, you know, for instance, Hassan Nasrallah was the most popular leader across the Arab world before, say, to, even among Sunni circles before 2007. But when then the Iraq war got worse and worse, then, you know, the sectarian uh, aspect angle got more extreme as well. And what you're talking about before, about, you know, a lot of Lebanese wanting to uh, join Syria historically, well, a lot of these used to be, you know, Sunni Lebanese, and it was the Hariri assassination that really for the first time, really turned. Uh, I mean, even before, of course, it was integrations. Saying a lot of Sunnis were very comfortable with Lebanon, but the Hariri assassination really turned uh, the Sunni streets, so to speak, against Syria. And then the Iraq War compounded these things, etc. So I see it as a gradual escalation, and I see it within. I mean, you can analyze it within the global f- uh, capitalism angle, as this is a state not unlike. You know, uh, other indebted states are Argentina, etc., who were in this debt trap, and mm-hmm. you couldn't get out of that. So you can look at it purely financially. It was almost like a no-win situation, unless, of course, you look at the Lebanese diaspora and the Gulf money that was pouring in. But that money too uh, dried up with the wars, etc., which which have to do with the uh, geographic or the geopolitical. Uh, situation of Lebanon. So one thing compounds the other, compounds the other, and it's and again, I I don't have a real uh, magic answer of how this could have been avoided. This this uh, it sounds very <laughs> very pessimistic, but uh, and hindsight is twenty twenty, I guess. But uh, I mean, you know, it's it is astounding that the Lebanese with their resilience could survive this long without any trouble but now again with the 
geopolitical pressures again uh, heightening. That it, it seems that uh, the, the and the financial uh, load of debt uh, being so excruciating, uh, we're really in a in a dark dark situation right now. So our traditional final question: uh, What are you working on now? Well, what what's your next project going to be? Okay. Yeah, I am currently teaching a class at the this semester at the University of Zurich on consumerism, citizenship, and cosmopolitanism. And this is a course I had originally developed in Qatar while teaching at Georgetown, Georgetown there, about this kind of tension between the passive consumer and the active citizen. And um, you know, I'm happy to sort of branch out into sociology, so to speak, and and to not just you know remain focused only on Lebanon or the Middle East. And so I look forward to that. Um, also uh, teaching a course for a group called Makat Online uh, out of England on uh, the citizen and, and the individual citizen and the state and looking at uh, Federalist Papers and Freedom from Hayek. This is kind of a, a broad course for a more public uh, audience. And lastly, I'm also kind of dabbling with a dictionary of shared etymological roots of English, Western language words, and German and Arabic and Semitic words. So I have hmm. this, this passion, this private passion about about that, that would be kind of a more popular dictionary. Uh, not as dense, I hope, and, and uh, pedantic as, as my last book. <laughs> and uh, we'll see how it goes from there. But uh, I, I miss the days at Harvard and also Georgetown and Qatar and elsewhere of free intellectual exchange. I think uh, we're entering a phase in history and where polemics and polarizations are stifling free debate. And I think that's very uh, unfortunate and we really need that. And this country like Lebanon needs it all the more. Lebanon was always this kind of hub of free uh, dialogue and, and discussion and a free press. And it's a very unfortunate, a lot of this newspapers, four or five of the major ones had to shut down in Lebanon. And uh, I think globally, again, we're seeing the kind of the margin of freedom of debate is, is narrowing everywhere. And it's very unfortunate because we do need that for the liberal state, so to speak, to survive. Uh, the book is Lebanon, The Rise and Fall of a Secular State Under Siege. It's out from Cambridge University Press in 2019. Uh, Mark Farha, thank you for being with us. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.